0: Hello, and welcome to the show in an episode where we talk about embracing some of the messy bits of day-to-day product management, and how practice makes perfect, or at least better. Speaking of practice, this episode is sponsored by Skip Level. Now, ask yourselves an honest question. Do you struggle with communicating with dev teams and understanding technical terminology and concepts? On episode 98 of this podcast, I hosted Irene New, founder of Skip Level, an on-demand training program that helps professionals and teams become more technical in just five weeks, all without learning how to code. You can learn the knowledge and skills you need to better communicate with devs and become more confident in your day to day role with the Skip Level program. So, if that sounds interesting, check out one night in skip level to find out more. Check the show notes for more details. All right, so technical skills aside, what are some of the other core skills of product managers? And why does it feel that product management isn't always quite how the books seem to suggest? If you want to find out to make more of an impact as a product manager wherever you are, stick with us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Matt LeMay. Matt's a former touring musician and music journalist turned product management guru, says he hates long PowerPoint decks, but the joke's on you, Matt, because I use Google Slides. Matt's passionate about fashion and is always well turned out, but he's in no mood to dress up the realities of product management and wants us all to see it for what it is, unfiltered and untouched. He's doing this as a product management consultant, coach, and renowned author of Product Management in Practice, a practical, tactical guide for your first day and every day after, although he's obviously not had some of the days I've had. Hi, Matt. How are you tonight?
1: I'm doing well, thanks. How are you?
0: I am doing wonderfully well and looking forward to deconstructing product management and hopefully reconstructing it in a slightly more attractive form. But let's see how we get on. So first things first, you are a partner, principal product management consultant at Sudden Compass. That's correct. So I have to ask, who are Sudden Compass and what are you doing for them specifically these days?
1: Sure. So Sudden Compass is a collective consisting of myself, Trisha Wong and Sonny Bates. I'm very lucky to work with two powerhouse geniuses Sunny's background is primarily in recruiting and network building. She is probably the least transactionally minded person I know in terms of (laughs) connecting people to other people, which I think is truly a superpower. She sees every opportunity long before other people do and has been at the vanguard of a lot of things. And Trisha Wong is an ethnographic research expert who studies how people use technology. And I was familiar with her work before we started working together. And we were doing work that overlapped in interesting and not terribly obvious ways and decided to pull together into a kind of consulting collective with the idea that we would be stronger if we had the opportunity to work with each other and share ideas with each other and continuously learn from each other. So here in the UK, I am primarily, <laughs> primarily doing my own little projects, but always having that base of support and collaboration to, uh, to learn and grow from.
0: So would you say it's fair to say that Sudden Compass isn't just in air quotes a uh, product management consultancy, but it's a bit of a wider thing and almost like a collective of people that can support each other, but you like you say, you're kind of you're not all just doing exactly the same stuff and working with the same clients.
1: Exactly. I mean I would say product management isn't just a product management thing. It's <laughs> Yeah, so we should that, read a book about that. Yeah. So I think the expansive and connective nature of the collective is true to the expansive and connective nature of the work that all of us do.
0: But for example, if you've got an ethnographer in the group, then what's an example of a time that that's helped you in your product management consulting?
1: Gosh, so Trisha trained me up in how to do qualitative research. Yep. And I am so grateful she did because I will never forget the first interview we did where she said, you know what, Matt, I'm going to let you lead and then we'll retrospect afterwards and we'll see what went well and what could be done better. And I made every mistake you could possibly make. I made the interview about myself, right down to like ordering the food I wanted rather than asking the interview subject what they wanted. I asked leading questions. The second they asked a question where I thought it was the answer I wanted, I went, oh, that's great. That's exciting. And she let me make all of those mistakes. And then afterwards, very generously helped me see why those weren't the right ways to do things. So not only did she train me in how to do research. She also trained me in how to train product managers to do research. And a lot of the work I do now kind of building bridges between researchers and product managers, one of the first things I tell researchers is you have to let people do bad research before they do good research. (laughs) And if you're going to try to somehow preempt bad research from ever taking place, you are going to stay in that gatekeeping posture for as long as research is being done in your organization. So I think back to that experience a lot as an example of how, you know, folks who are really confident in their work are able to let other people do that work badly and then show them a better way rather than trying to stop them from doing that work at all.
0: Reminds me of my dad watching me do DIY gamely trying to repatch a bit of wall or something like that and (laughs) sitting there watching me with a pained look on his face for a while and then eventually just taking the tools and fixing it all up for me properly. So uh, maybe not quite the same, but definitely the same sort of area. <laughs> but before we talk about product management in practice, I wanted to dig into your own journey into product management just a little and find out how you got to where you got to today at the, or not necessarily the summit, or what are the summits of product management? What was it that got you into product management in the first place?
1: Um, a Google search for job in tech, bad at <laughs> programming, okay salary um that's
0: <laughs> you got an okay salary jeez
1: yeah i wasn't very i wasn't terribly ambitious i was i think 26 at the time
0: i dream of an okay salary
1: <laughs> so i was working uh i got my first job at a tech startup as an api evangelist oh wow doing developer relations and this was a contract gig i was invited to come on full-time i didn't know what title to ask for so i did the aforementioned Google search and <laughs> product manager came up and I went to my boss and said, I want to be a product manager. And he said, sure, I don't care. And uh, 12 and a half years later, here we are.
0: But that sounds like, and actually to be fair, I think you call it out in the book as well, that that's not something that was a particularly structured role that you're going in for and something that you maybe had to work out a little bit what that even really meant. And you said also in the book that you wished that you'd had your book Back when you started, which obviously you didn't because you hadn't written it yet. But that does beg the question like, how did you get started? Like, were there other books that you read? Were there mentors or other people in the community that you could reach out to? It sounds like maybe your boss wasn't necessarily the person to fully define that for you. So, like, how did you get in then? How did you get started? Sure. I mean, I
1: wish I had been better about seeking mentorship and guidance from other people. I think at the time, I was still a younger and more defensive person. And I really wanted to project that I had some idea of what I was doing. So I just googled every short article I could read and tried to absorb all of it as quickly as possible and kind of showed up on my first day to work. I think I kept this in the second edition with the uh something to the effect of the unearned swagger of a young man who had read many things very quickly. <laughs> and I really tried to Look how heavily I'm qualifying this. I tried to pretend I didn't even successfully pretend that I had some clue what I was doing, but I had no idea what I was doing. And what I did find myself doing had very little to do with the articles I had read, which left me convinced that I was doing the wrong things on top of doing those things poorly. So it was a very stressful, I'd say my first year in particular of product management involved a lot of sleepless nights, a fair amount of crying. And, uh, I don't think I was intrinsically confident nor humble enough because confidence and humility are certainly not opposites of each other. I was neither of those things enough to seek the guidance that probably would have been most valuable to me. So I was happy to try to encapsulate it in book form, which is more, (laughs) more palatable to those of us who get very nervous asking other people for help or guidance directly.
0: But that's an interesting point, right? Because writing a book is something that you know, you touched on it yourself there. You had this kind of maybe naive confidence when you started out wanting to try and make the best of it and being a little bit too either proud or nervous or scared of asking for advice or some mixture of all of those things. But writing a book is itself a statement. And the first edition of Product Management Practice, I think, came out in 2017 or so so that's correct yes. it was a f- few years after you started but it's still a big step so what was it that made you feel that it was time to go and write a book aside from wanting to get your learnings down I mean lots of people want to get their learnings down but actually getting those down in a structured way and, uh, and having the confidence to release that and publish that and try and get it in front of other people was there like a, a moment where you thought this book has to be or was it more of a an iterative process that just kind of happened as you went along
1: yeah, so I, I think it started more iteratively. Um, a friend of mine invited me to give a talk for a room full of newsroom product managers, and I gave a talk called The Past and Future of Product Management, where I just kind of walked through where I saw the discipline going and threw some of my opinions out there. I wrote that up as a medium article because my friend pointed out that I was shifting on my feet a lot in the video recording, and it looked very strange. I had not <laughs> yet learned how to command a stage or whatever it is I do to or with a stage. And so I just wrote it up as an article, and it got a lot of traction. I was really surprised at how much it seemed to resonate with folks. So I had met some editors at O'Reilly, and I pitched them on the idea of a very voicey and opinionated book about product management. And <laughs> They were open to it. And then the moment where it really crystallized for me, funny enough, I met with somebody in New York. I was living in New York at the time. And he was like, Well, what's your hook? What's the what's the, you know, the big idea? And I said, You know, I just want to dump out everything I think would possibly be helpful to a product manager in one book. And he said, You can't do that. That's not a book. <laughs> you have to save something. You can't give away everything you think is valuable in one place. You need to save something for yourself, for future books and for consulting and for other purposes and in that moment (laughs) the part of me the part of me that uh for better or worse likes to keep myself in check and feels some need to uh give away too much of myself was activated let's say and i said oh that's perfect that's exactly weirdly this is exactly what i needed i do want to write a book which is just everything i want to give everything away like i want to just put everything i possibly can that could possibly be helpful to a product manager in this book because product managers need a lot of help and I've made a lot of mistakes. And if I can spare somebody else making those mistakes or at least help somebody get into that cycle of reflecting on those mistakes a little bit more quickly and a little more openly, then I can see this book as a success. So that weirdly was was the moment where I was like, okay, now I know exactly what I'm going to do.
0: Well, there you go. The origin story originated right there but one thing i will also say as an aside is i can vouch for your stage style and the fact that you can go out there and be fairly contrary (laughs) but in a really constructive way i think i saw you a couple of times on stage and it's been really interesting watching you kind of take almost a i don't know if it's a deliberately contrarian position or just your sort of punchy style but just it's really interesting watching some of the other people i think it was a panel like some of the people that that on stage of you kind of like Almost taken aback by the opinions that aren't the same as everyone else's opinions. So just, I think it's good. We need more electricity within product management. right?
1: Thank you. I mean, my, my inspiration, uh, funny enough, is is Alan Watts. If you ever watch any of the videos of him on on YouTube, there's just this delicious deep knowledge and this joy in sharing that knowledge. Obviously, Alan Watts was not talking about product management, but talking about existence and Zen Buddhism, but There's something about the way he approaches things that, That, in both content and style that
0: I aspire to. There you go. Get those boxing gloves on. But but now we're back with edition two of the book. Yes. Revised and expanded, so it says on the cover. So in general, what's changed in version two of the book and why should people buy it?
1: Sure. So a couple of things have changed. You know, one of the great and ever humbling things about product management is the longer you do it and are around it, the more your own opinions change. Yeah. So there were a few things in the first edition that I think I had simplified too much, frankly, especially this idea that having good goals will help you make good prioritization decisions. (laughs) You know, this was frankly just the limitations of my own experience. I have worked mostly with smaller companies where you could have a product manager and a CEO setting goals quarterly together. And the more I've worked with enterprises and, and companies where there's this complex layer cake of goals that I speak about in the book, the more I've just come to embrace and accept the irreducible complexity and the fact that there will always be some tension and some misalignment and this idea of achieving a state where goals and objectives are aligned perfectly within the organization. It's a nice idea, but it's, it's rarely, if ever, a state that's achieved. So it was really important for me to go back and, and expand upon that a little bit. And I think I got, you know, more I don't want to say more argumentative because it doesn't feel terribly argumentative, but I I got more direct in stating that some of the orthodoxies of product management world, particularly around hustle culture and the idea that you have to work sixty hours a week to be a product manager, that these are not ideas we should hold up or support in the product management community. Yeah. In part because these were things I heard when I did a lot of interviews this time. I heard from folks who'd struggled with burnout who had made the decision to put in those 60 hour weeks at the expense of their own mental health or the health of their family and their happiness. So I think it it was important to me to speak to some of those things more directly now that, you know, I think I've, I've gotten to a place, thankfully, where I feel a little bit more comfortable stating some of these things more directly and challenging some of these orthodoxies with a little bit more credibility or momentum or whatever you want to call it behind
0: me. No it makes a lot of sense and obviously that 60 hour thing for example something that has come up a bit on social recently people calling that out I think actually Marty Kagan who obviously famously wrote that and in inspired recently was interviewed on another podcast you know those things exist apparently he was interviewed on another podcast and tried to kind of reframe that and say that it wasn't necessarily an aspiration but more of a just a reality of what he'd seen but not something that he was promoting so I think it is true that there's a lot of ivory tower thinking out there like this is the way that the big tech companies do it and this is just the way that it should be and if you're not doing like this then you're a bad product manager now i know you talk a little bit about bad product managers in the book as well but more around the types of behaviors that they exhibit which is which is fair enough but i think that whenever i get into these good bad product manager arguments it's always like it always feels like people are almost attacking the person versus the yeah. behaviors they're like oh well you're a bad product manager you look at it and it's like well they're not a bad product manager per se they're just in a company that's not doing things the way that the good product managers say. And I think that reducing it down to that person is a bad product manager, I think is not a very friendly thing to do at all. No,
1: I, I agree with that. And, and the one that's really been getting my goat lately is the idea <laughs> that if your company uses a certain framework or defines the role a certain way, then you don't get to call yourself a product manager, yep. or you're not a real product manager. I speak to this directly in my chapter, which really should just be called yelling about Agile because that's what it is at this point. <laughs> but, you know, I have heard people say, you know, if you're working in safe, you're not really a product manager. or If your company does this, you're not really a product manager. And I hate that because for starters, what does it even mean to really be, I mean, these are all made up things to begin with. So why <laughs> use this to make people feel bad about themselves? Yeah. But beyond that, You know, I know people who don't have product manager titles, who are project managers or product owners or scrum masters or whatever, who are doing phenomenal work, who are thinking strategically, who are having an impact. And this idea that the constraints or the shape or the frameworks chosen in your organization would preclude you from doing this job well is, in fact, giving these frameworks more power than a lot of folks who advocate for those frameworks. Yeah. So I think you know that kind of magical thinking. If we're going to oppose it. On one side, in terms of, you know, this magical framework will make you a good product manager. We also have to oppose it on the other side and say, you know, by that same token, this terrible framework won't make you a terrible product manager. (laughs) There's always good work to be done. There's always a move. There's always a step. And I think the big theme that came up in in the interviews I did for this round of of the book was I wish I had spent less time raging at my organization for not doing product (laughs) management, quote unquote, the right way. Oh, yeah. And I've just done the best work I could and, you know, focused on myself and and my team and our customers and having a decent life as a human being on planet Earth. And I, I think that's so, 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 so important because even those big tech companies aren't doing product management, quote unquote, the right way. They're just publishing recruiting propaganda so they can compete with the other big tech companies who also have challenges and constraints and personalities and issues to deal with.
0: I think it's really interesting and you touched on it just there as well, this idea that maybe the people that are advocating for these things are doing it more strongly in some ways than the people that wrote the books and obviously on the podcast I've interviewed a bunch of people that have written some of those books and every single one of those in the interviews at least and to be fair even in some of the books are kind of caveating some of their advice with the fact that you know this is somewhat hard and like you look at things like continuous discovery habits which obviously everyone loves these days and it's a great book but even within that book and speaking to Teresa as well like She's not saying that this is easy or possible in certain situations or that everyone's going to get to do it but at the same time she's kind of putting it out there as something that you should aspire to. Now I guess the question though is should we extrapolate this and say that actually people should for example just read books like yours or do you think that there's a lot of value in reading these aspirational books that are out there and the kind of the best-in-class processes and, and methodologies and frameworks and ideologies and, and all of that stuff like should people still read those books but just with a certain pinch of salt in their hand or should they just go to the more pragmatic books like yours
1: yeah there's something i said at the beginning of this second edition which i really want to put out there which is when i was reading back through the first edition of my book there was a bunch of stuff i disagreed with in my own book
0: <laughs>
1: that i had had more experience and i looked back over things and said well that's oversimplifying it or no that's not quite right and I hope people read my book and every other book that same way. Yeah, I think that it's a good sign when you read a book and you disagree with something because it means that you have experience that is concrete enough for you to look at advice being presented as expert advice and say, this might not apply to my situation. So, you know, I do have people come up to me sometimes and say, well, I disagree with this thing you wrote. And I say, great. Tell me more. I didn't used to. You know, it's taken me time to uh, to get to this this point in in my life and self concept in general. But I think that the best place to get is one where knowledge can only be helpful, not dangerous. Which is to say that anything you read about, you can extrapolate out something that you think might be interesting or that might be worth trying. You know, where you could read the safe manual and rather than being like, "Look at this stupid thing," like. Hmm it's not really agile, you could be like, oh, this idea is actually interesting. Like having these coordination points might be really valuable or like thinking about value delivery in this way might be really valuable. I think the goal in reading these things is never to find a single correct way of working. And as you said, I think everybody who wrote these books would absolutely agree with that, that nobody is trying to position abstract knowledge as more valuable than practical knowledge But in order to write a book, you need to abstract out the infinite variability of practical knowledge. Yeah. So I think I always tell people, like, read everything and don't take anything as gospel. Read everything and think critically.
0: No, absolutely. Definitely a big fan of internalizing as much as possible. And I think actually it was a book, the Jeff Sutherland book about scrum. Mm Mm-hmm which I think I listened to on an audio book for my sins. And there was something in there, which I need to find if it's actually in the book, if I just dreamt it. But this idea that you learn the system, you master the system, and then you throw away the system. Because actually by learning the system, what you've done is you've internalized actually the core principles, I guess, of the system. And then you can adapt that to whatever situation that you need to be in, rather than just sitting there, as you see some people online, on LinkedIn, sort of sitting there saying, well, if you're not doing this, then you're not doing scrum. And I guess the most important takeaway for me is it doesn't matter if you're doing scrum, doesn't matter if you're doing agile, you don't get any points for doing any of that, really. What you get points for is delivering a good product that goes out and makes a lot of money and makes a lot of users happy, right? Like how you get there, it's important, but it's not the end of the world or the be all and the end all, right? No, and
1: these are all made up things. (laughs) So I wrote a book called Agile for Everybody which I, I still think is one of the better books about agile, but being an agile world to promote that book got so exhausting <laughs> because you're boxing phantoms all around you. You're having these conversations about like, well, is this really agile? Is this really scrum? I'm like, these are made up things. Like who cares yeah. if it's working for your team, if it's helping you deliver better outcomes, why, you know, I had people tell me, for example, you can't change the three questions at the daily stand-up. It's not allowed. You have to ask. <laughs> I'm like, well, I've worked on teams where those three questions didn't help, and we changed those questions, and it did help. So I mean, who am I gonna believe, right? My lying eyes or the <laughs> the sacred text. And even the sacred text, in almost every case, as you pointed out, says, Look, if this doesn't work, change it. Yeah. So I'm I I just don't want to waste any more of my life having having those arguments with people it's uh, uh, there's no point
0: no absolutely but back in the day i used to ask guests on this podcast to role play being at a barbecue and explaining product management to some person that they bumped into over a sausage and had never heard of it before but your book goes into that in some detail so i'm not going to do the role play but there are some things that you say like you you call out and you have called out in this interview as well the fact that product management is a bit messy there's no like yeah ISO definition for what a product manager is. And it's different in all these different companies. But you do talk about some core skills of product managers. And I use that word advisedly (laughs) because it's actually the acronym. So you've got communication, organization, research, and execution. So why are those the four core elements of a product manager? And does it matter if PMs don't have all of them?
1: Sure. So when I was developing this model, I actually developed it through some workshops I was doing. And I knew it was valuable, which is not to say correct, but I knew it was valuable when I would ask people to self-evaluate against these skills and get different answers from a lot of different people. Yeah. That's usually the sign that you've created a model where the options within that model are differentiated enough that it's useful as a mechanism for reflection. And I find this model, again, as with most models, useful as a mechanism for reflection. And when I work with organizations to operationalize it, sometimes we change it. Uh, We can change it to score, to put strategy in there or change at facilitation and make it force. Or, uh, you know, I think execution, as I describe it, is really in some ways more about prioritization. So we can make it the corp model or the pork in French P-O-R-C model, <laughs> if we prefer. Sometimes organization is confusing and it's better reframed as operations. But I think the, the basic idea is that you need to be able to communicate what you're doing. You need to be able to organize or operationalize, create systems so your team can work effectively, even if you're not in the room constantly. You need to be able to research, learn new information about your customer, your market, your users, all that stuff. And then you need to be able to execute. You need to be able to get stuff done and prioritize what gets done and do the things that actually matter. So if you can do those things, then I think the rest of it, you know, again, it varies from team to team, from organization to organization. But I think, you know, if you can do those things effectively, you're well positioned to do the work of product management. And to your second question, you know no i think part of why i like this model also is that these aren't skills that you have or don't have right these are skills that you are constantly developing yeah. and leveling up so you know for me communication is is something i've i've done for a long time i give talks i write books i talk to people learning how to create systems and organize is something i need to work on you know i had to literally be trained up in research because i didn't know how to do it well and the prioritization piece of execution You know, execution doesn't mean you do everything. It means you do the things that are important. And learning how to do that has been a journey for me as well. So I think, you know, you never have or don't have these skills. You are constantly both developing them and defining what they mean in your particular context.
0: If we were to, and I'm not sure what what word it would spell, but if we were to put technical skills in there as well, which is something that you see debated all over the place these days, like should product managers be technical? Should they not? Like, where do you stand on that?
1: I think it depends. And I can say from my own experience, Uh, classic, classic, right? But but here's the thing. I think, you know, if you're working, again, if you're working in a system where you need to have a baseline of a certain set of technical knowledge to help your team make decisions, of course, you know, I'm not going to walk in and be like, no, that doesn't matter in your situation (laughs) where it clearly matters. But speaking from my own experience, my technical knowledge I had going in made me annoying more than it made me useful. Oh, yeah. Which is to say, I thought I could like hang with the developers and be like, oh, I know how to write PHP. And they were like, whatever, we don't care.
0: (laughs) I think the ability to
1: ask thoughtful questions to learn technical knowledge in context is really valuable. So I tell product managers like you can't dismiss technical things as over your head. You can't say, oh, I could never understand that. I'm not technical. You have to be curious enough to go in and say, okay, this might not be my area of expertise, but I want to understand. I want to know more about how you do this work. If you can be open and curious in that way, then in most cases, I think you can learn what you need, and you can learn it from the people you need to work with and learn it in context, which is more valuable than doing what I did at first, which was to say, oh, we're a Python shop. I should go read a bunch of books about Python and show up and impress the developers, which (laughs) did not work.
0: It's very difficult to impress developers at the best of times, even if you're another developer. As I remember (laughs) from my days of being a developer, I remember getting sand kicked in my face by the cooler developers. So, Can't even imagine what it must be like if you go in there half-cocked. But there's also the tiresome old trope of CEO of product. And your book calls that out as well. It's been called out by a number of people that PMs aren't really the CEOs of product. They have to work with actual CEOs and they have to work with senior stakeholders and subject matter experts within the company. And lots of PMs complain that they're getting micromanaged or that they're not empowered just because they're executing someone else's plan. And obviously that dynamic does exist. There's been plenty of or I've worked in places where that exists. But is there a way that PMs can make peace with their position in the organization and work effectively with senior stakeholders rather than just immediately crying out that they're in a feature factory as soon as someone says that they should do something?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. (laughs) I think, you know, when you're a CEO, you state some idea you have, and everybody says, great, we love it, we'll go do it. When you're a product manager, you state some idea you have. And pardon my language, everyone says, go fuck yourself. Like immediately, everybody. (laughs) It's a very different position where, you know, on the one hand, people are incentivized to treat everything you say as a pearl of genius. And on the other hand, because you have no authority, you know, people are going to be skeptical. People are going to ask you hard questions. People are really going to want to know that what you're discussing is important and valuable. And you're going to have to be able to present a case for that, which doesn't, or I don't want to say present a case for that. You're going to have to give people the information they need to make the right decision. And this is one, I've seen a lot of people using this kind of language recently about creating the conditions for good decision making. I know John Cutler has been talking about this a lot. Um, my friend Sayel De Silva has been talking about this. A lot of folks have been basically saying that when you're a product manager, you're not going to be the final decision maker. Your job is to create the conditions where good decisions can be made. And I would take this even one step farther and say, you know, a lot of product managers I've worked with get really hung up on this idea of influence. They want to influence the important people. They want to create that, you know, that they want to be whispering in the ear of the CEO, even if they can't <laughs> be the CEO. And I think the only path to freedom and, and happiness in product management is to give up, not just on decision-making, but on, on influence directly as well, and to say, look, my job is just to create the conditions where the best possible decision can be made. I can't control other people's behavior. I can't control other people's actions. I can't control the decision that the CEO is going to make. And beyond that, the CEO might know things I don't. The CEO might know that we're planning an acquisition, which is going to change our strategy the CEO might know that there's some battle taking place between shareholders where we have to pursue one thing and we can't pursue another. At a certain point, you have to let go and trust that the people making decisions, even if they're not making the right decisions, they have their reasons for making those decisions. And you will not always know or understand all those reasons. But the things that you do know and you do understand, it is your job to communicate as directly to those stakeholders as you possibly can. So when product managers come to me and they say, you know, I, I I did everything I could to try to make this decision and they made the other decision. I say, you know, if you gave that person all the information you thought they needed to make that decision as thoughtfully as possible, if you help them understand the trade-offs that go into making that decision, if rather than arguing for what you think is the right thing, you said, Here are three different options, here are the trade-offs and the benefits and the risks of each one, you've done your job. And you should be able to disconnect, go home, have dinner and sleep at night knowing that you did your job. You can't control other people. You can't. I gave a talk I, I'm really proud of, given at two conferences now, called You Don't Get Anyone to Do Anything. Yep. Because people ask me all the time, how do we get executives to make better decisions? How do we get researchers to prioritize the work? The researchers ask me, how do we get product managers to care about research? And I was, I was speaking at a, an agile conference, and the first and only question I got was, how do we get executives to be more agile? And I said, you don't get anyone to do anything. And I got no more answers. And people were very unhappy with the answer I, I provided no more questions. That was it. So um, I thought maybe there's something here. But I think once you realize that you don't get anyone to do anything, even the idea of influence is probably an illusion and probably an ego driven illusion at that. Provide the best information you can help people articulate and achieve their goals and then go home, eat a nice dinner, hang out with the people you care about and live a balanced life. That's really the best advice I can give people.
0: Well, there you go. That's uh, getting very profound there. But one thing that I've seen (laughs) in the past as well is people who really want to be the decision makers, be the influence. And to be fair, when I say that, I've seen it, I've also earlier in my career been somewhat in this situation myself. Like you want to be the person that either influences or makes a decision. You want to be that CEO of product or whatever it is that you're calling yourself, but you don't actually have any better ideas. Nope. Your ideas are just that you should be making them and you spend so much time either trying to defend that position or build up defenses around yourself or doing research to continuously try to work out whether that's the right decision that you forget to actually make a decision. Then you get surprised when the leadership of the company are like, well, we kind of want to make a decision now and they basically do this whole overriding hippo thing. But to be fair, could you blame them?
1: No. I think you said something really important there, which is this idea of defending things. I have found that in my product management career, I have harmed everything I have sought to defend. When I've sought to defend (laughs) my team against executive interference, I've actually harmed my team because I've disconnected them from organizational goals. When I've sought to defend my decisions against those who would question them, I've made those decisions worse because decisions are made better by more information. And in my attempt to defend those decisions, I have shut out other information. And when I've sought to defend myself and say, look at all the great work I'm doing, I've actually made myself less effective and less valuable as a product manager. So I think one of the hardest things to, to really recognize is that by the time you find yourself in a defensive posture, you're already failing. Yep. You're already making things worse. That's one of, the, one of the Alan Watts ideas that I love talking about is the law of reverse effort. Just to say the harder you try, the worse you make things. And I think it's very hard for product managers who pride ourselves on working very hard to accept this. But in a lot of cases, the harder we try, the more we dig in, the worse we make things. And the path to better product management often is more about letting go than it is
0: about digging in. This is starting to feel very zen again, as you said earlier. <laughs> or so, right, like Bruce Lee, yeah, be like water. But one of the things that I did like in the book was your idea, and I think you encapsulated in like if you're in some kind of unideal situation like you're being top-down managed or overridden or told what to build all the classic things that pms complain about and yeah we have to call out that sometimes that does go a bit too far like there's it's, it's not always that the pm needs to let go like sometimes they just work for truly poorly run organizations but let's put that to one side like one thing that i did like is your idea that you shouldn't just get fed up and start fighting the system and fighting your bosses but switch focus and relentlessly focus on your users and try to yes. get success that way. Now, that obviously sounds super fantastic. And we should all be focusing on our users because that's a big part of the product manager's job. And some would argue the entire product manager's job. But I've also worked in places where it felt like I was actively being blocked from focusing on the users even. So yeah. is it as simple as just saying, if you're in a bad situation, focus on your users? Or is it a bit more complex than that? And are there other kind of ways to get through that type of situation where you might be being put into a defensive posture?
1: Oh, nothing's ever that simple. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly focusing on your users is always easier said than done. <laughs> and I hope that on some other podcast right now, somebody is saying like, yeah, Matt's book just really oversimplifies what to do when you're in it. Because it does, <laughs> right? Like it, Everything is necessarily oversimplified. But I, I, I think, you know, again, personal experience is always a limiting factor in one's perspective. And I think I was writing largely from my own personal experience, where looking back, there were opportunities to shift focus and I didn't take those opportunities because I was so embattled. I was so focused on, I didn't get that promotion so I can't have the influence I want in the organization. Or I, you know, uh, this executive is trying to thwart me. I was focused on the wrong things and I could have focused on better things. Now, again, as you said, That's not always the case. You don't always have the opportunity to focus on other things. But looking back honestly on my own career, I have had those opportunities and not made the most of them because I was so focused on the particular ways in which I thought I was being thwarted or, uh, you know, otherwise minimized or underappreciated by my organization. So, you know, again, I think the big call out is look for those opportunities if you find yourself in a situation where you may have been so focused on your own position in the organization that you haven't necessarily looked for those
0: opportunities. Absolutely. But one common complaint from those types of PMs that may be in some of those situations is that they're stuck in a feature factory. You know, another bingo card phrase for PMs these days. Sure. They might start waffling about outcomes over outputs. Again, the rallying cry of the wannabe empowered product manager. But you talk about the outcomes and output seesaw in the book.
1: Yes, I'm still thinking about this so much (laughs) these days.
0: Um, So how does that concept help
1: PMs? So this also came from, this was like to the minute when I was writing the book. Like, I think I crammed this in in the last round of edits because (laughs) it was happening with a team I was coaching where they kept saying, outcomes over output, outcomes over output. Um, But they kept coming back to outputs. And I was like, all right, well, what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve? And they were like, well, we want to get, more conversions. I'm like, well, how many? By what date? we are like, oh, scary. So <laughs> the thing I found is that you need specificity to come from somewhere. You can't say we're going to do some stuff to make some number go up by some amount at some time. That makes people nervous, and rightly so. Right? <laughs> if you're an yep. executive at a company and product manager comes to and says, yeah, we're going to get more new users signed up and we're going to do it some way, that doesn't leave you feeling terribly confident. So the thing I've found is that you need to get really specific about the outcomes you're trying to achieve. You need to say this many users by this date. I, I keep cycling through the framing. I used to say, you need to have high specificity, high altitude goals. I'm changing that to high specificity, high impact goals. Like, cause altitude is a confusing word, especially when I've been going around Europe saying altitude, and people are like, why are you talking about altitude? <laughs> so I, I think I found that when teams commit, you know, I just went through this with a team I was working with on a consulting engagement. This team is responsible for kind of cross-boarding users from an old platform to a new platform. Yeah, And they said, well, but we just keep being given features to build. I said, okay, well, how many new users do you want to get on there? By what date? They said, well, we, we don't know. We can't really say. I said, okay. End of Q1 2023, do you want to say, how many do you want to say? That? Well, we, we don't know. We can't say it. And I said, all right, 10, 100, or 1,000. Somebody said, gosh, if we committed to 1,000, we'd really have to focus on just building out the core platform here. We'd have to say no to a lot of
0: requests. Oh, there you go.
1: There you go, (laughs) 1,000. So, again, I think looking, really looking for that specificity on the order of outcomes. Again, if you think about it as a seesaw, you push down and get more specific on that side. And suddenly you have more freedom. You say, well, okay, well, how do we get these users over here? Do we just send an email saying, use this thing? Do we get more people opting in? Do we switch everyone over? in a mandatory way, like you start to ask those really important questions and you start to realize that you probably have some levers to work with that aren't features, but that might involve working with the marketing team or working with sales or doing things (laughs) that product teams might be more reluctant to do unless they have some good, healthy pressure compelling them to do so. So I think, you know, for me, it's not outcomes over output. It's like these two things are in a system with each other. And if you get more specific and ambitious about outcomes, you're probably going to have to get a little bit more clever about output, which is what presumably these teams want.
0: This reminds me, as you were saying, about not being just outcomes or just output. was the it, it reminds me of the phrase from the Agile Manifesto that we, you know, the things on the left don't have, have no value, but we just value the things on the right more, rather than it being a binary thing, which is, of exactly. course, the biggest problem that you see a lot of people with their Agile absolutism, and I guess product absolutism in this case, is like it's not just one. It's somewhere along a line. And the position that you're on that line may change depending on the situation and the context that you have on any particular day or just in a particular company, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I still, you know, I'll still do workshops where I'm, people are like, well, we can't do Agile, because Agile says you can't have, have documentation. And I'm like, it says right there, there's sixty-eight words in <laughs> <on> this thing. <laughs> and <laughs> you've neglected like a fifth of them. So, you know. Yeah. Again, everything everything will always be misinterpreted and selectively read, but that's
0: human nature. Except your book, except your book.
1: Right, except my, except my
0: book. Now, we can all accept that product management is ambiguous, messy, noisy, and at the end of the day, quite hard. And you acknowledge this throughout the book, but in the forward to the second edition, you say there's tremendous upside in the role as well, and you want to bring some positivity to it as well. Yeah. So what are some of the best things, or maybe just pick one, Yeah. prioritization? What's the best thing about being a product manager as far as you're concerned?
1: You are always learning new things. And that's phenomenal. Like, you never, every time I've been like, oh, I've got this figured out, I know how to do this job, some new challenge presents itself. And I realize, gosh, I have so much to learn. So I think if you are open to the idea of showing up to work every day and learning something new and facing a new challenge and working through a new problem, I'm hard pressed to think of a better role.
0: Well, there you go. Growth mindset, full speed ahead. And where can people find you after this if they want to chat more about product management, find out more about the book, or see if they can get any sartorial tips for that next big business meeting?
1: Sure. So uh, for sartorial tips, find me on uh, Instagram, probably. That's at M-T-T-L-M-Y. There you go. If you want to talk product management, probably find me on LinkedIn, or just go to mattlemay.com or email me at, matt at mattlemais.com. I am technically on Twitter, but I am probably going to deactivate any second, and I'm not active on Twitter. so let's uh, avoid the sunk cost fallacy as best we can (laughs) but yeah always always happy to hear from folks
0: I will pop over to Instagram to get away from my black hoodie and jeans uh. (laughs) all right well I'll make sure to link that all into the show notes hopefully you'll get a few people heading in your direction to find out more fantastic thank you so much no worries well that's been a great chat so obviously really happy to spend some time talking about the messy realities of product management obviously we'll keep in touch but yeah as for now thanks for taking the time Thank you. As always, thanks for listening. I hope you found the episode inspiring and insightful. If you did again, I can only encourage you to pop over to onenightinproduct.com, Check out some of my other fantastic guests. Sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favorite podcast app and make sure you share with your friends so you and they can never miss another episode again. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest. But as for now, thanks and good night.